Chapter 8 The sun hung from the sky like an uncooked egg, sagging against the dry, empty horizon. A small, black silhouette, no bigger than the tiniest fleck of peppercorn, wove along its burnt orange underside with the grace of a beaten fly. And with it came an expected insect buzz, followed by rattles of rust as it spit clouds of smoke the size of rabbit turds. The closer it came, the larger and brighter the sun behind it grew, until the fading sky cast even the flattest, deadest tree into slanted shadow. Then, beneath the lights of the remaining day, a highway appeared, pointing straight out from that sun like a hanging dagger blade. And on this road, speeding down it and chasing its own black reflection, a small car fell into view. He had returned. Passing over the border of Nebraska and entering his home state of Iowa for the first time in nearly ten years. His name was Ken Morrison, born 1985, the only child of Harold and Loretta Morrison of Morrison Automotive, Clive, Iowa. And how else but by the exploding flames of an apocalyptical sun could he blast back through all he'd meant to leave behind for good? Both his parents had died two days prior when their whale-watching vessel had been attacked by a team of agitated orcas. They'd been vacationing at sea, and while the accident already carried rather crude and visceral imagery, just that morning the Des Moines Register had released statements from the ship's sole surviving crew member, who described the event as ungodly horrific and darker than any nightmare. This poor sailor had given these statements from a hospital bed where he now laid limbless and blind. Ken hadn't bothered to read the article. Since dropping out of college, he didn't read much. he just purchased the newspaper as a keepsake. His parents' photo on the front page was rather pleasant. It was a photo of them holding little baby Ken all those years ago when he'd first come into this strange world. The headline of the paper read, Tragedy at Sea, the Lives and Deaths of Iowa's Beloved Auto Dealers. This newspaper laid next to Ken in the passenger's seat, along with a carton of cigarettes, a few loose CDs, and a balled-up jean jacket. The floor was scattered with paper cups and empty water bottles. In the back seat was an out-of-tune 12-string guitar with a few strings broken and hanging from it. The back seat was also littered with fast food wrappers and empty packs of cigarettes, piled up to the back window. Ken thought about his parents and about the world with a hand resting on the steering wheel and the accelerator pressed to the floor. He held a glass pipe limply in his lap and dug in its bowl with his thumbnail, trying to unclog it. He'd been on tour with the band Fish for the past five years, taking intermittent breaks to travel with widespread panic. Ken had never learned much about cars from his father, and once he'd left Iowa for college in California, the only thing he'd continually received from his parents 
were checks in the mail with smiley faces on the memo lines. This money alone had taught Ken responsibility. That was why he dropped out of UCLA five years ago with only a handful of credits completed. Back then, he turned 22 with the notion that he might not get to see the world as a young artist. So he'd abandoned his fraternity brothers on a whim in the night and left town with a girl he'd just met, taking with him only his guitar, his favorite sweater, and $600,000. That same sweater was still on his back as he drove into the coming Iowa night. The guitar, while very much abused, rested safely in the back seat. But the girl had disappeared somewhere along the way, just like the words of a song, she'd one day just gone in another direction. But the money had continued to pile up. Ken's affinity for camping and shoplifting made spending rather difficult. And now with this tragedy at sea, his final lumped inheritance awaited him in just a few hours. He thought about the girl from his travels as he lit the pipe and took a drag, rolling down his window and letting a thick stream of smoke fall from his nose. He couldn't remember her name. Ken had been perpetually stoned for almost an entire decade. He looked over the leather-green cornfields to either side of the road, their stalk tips moving like water. He smiled at the smell of the state, a smell he'd nearly forgotten. It was the smell of emptiness. The smell of the world itself with no one else around. He turned the volume down on his stereo and listened to the fields shift beneath the wind. Then he began the long-dreaded task of remembrance. That cathartic state of reflection he'd spent years extinguishing with white wine and marijuana. Visions that haunted him on sober mornings or slid between his dreams on lonely nights. These things were his memories, the thoughts he'd been avoiding since leaving for college. Back here in the Midwest, Ken had been a star athlete, a decent student at mathematics, and a revered comic among the Clive Musical Theater Company. He'd also been the first love of a girl at his school, a girl named Becky, who he hadn't seen since shortly after his graduation. Ken had never told Becky, but she'd been his first love as well. Becky, he said aloud, realizing he still remembered her name. He thought about her face. She'd been pretty back then, and kind of short, with brown or maybe red hair. He flipped on his headlights. It'd been so long. He crested a rise, thinking over their summer nights together. He thought about time and how she'd been only a freshman when he'd left her behind, abandoning the only real love he'd ever known. This much he could not bring himself to admit out loud, though its truth was plain. He did the math in his head, counting the numbers along the glowing highway lines as they passed beneath him. She would be 23 by now. He tried to think of himself at that age, but gave up quickly, irritated by his memory's blurriness. He shook his head and tossed the pipe onto the newspaper beside him and turned the volume back up on the stereo. One of his favorite fish songs was starting to form from a light improvisational jam. He cranked it all the way up and let the guitar hook cut through his thoughts the way it often did on nights much like this, 
alone on the road. The moon rose from behind the trees, shining like a brand new coin. He thought about Becky's small hands and how soft they'd been. He reached beneath the seat and pulled out a bottle of white port, biting the cork out with his teeth and spitting it onto the floor. He took a swig and wiped his mouth, blinking his eyes. A green sign glowed up ahead. It read, Clive 33.